Hey Icon, good to be with you today. For those of you who are at home online, I hope you're doing well. For those of you who are together uh, in the watch party, man, it is good to be together finally after all this time. And uh, my hope and prayer is that we get this virus under control and we can go back to having live services. But until then, um, we are still in the Gospel of John. So if you want to turn to John chapter 5, and while you're doing that, uh, I have a question for you, right? Here's the question. How do you know what is right and what is wrong? How do you know? How do you, when faced with an issue, faced with a problem, faced with some conflict or conundrum in your life, how do you decide whether the thing you're pursuing is the right thing to pursue or it is the wrong thing to pursue? When you see something on the news, how do you decide whether it is a good thing or a bad thing? When you read a new book or a tweet or an article, how do you decide whether what you are reading is good or bad? right or wrong, good or evil? How do you decide? For Christians, the answer is Jesus, to put it simply. And, and before we go more deeply into that answer, which is the topic that we're going to discuss today, um, for those of you who are listening today or watching and uh, are not Christians, I would ask you, how do you know? If you don't have any uh, kind of religious conviction, um, what is it that you use to decide whether what you are seeing or what you are doing or what you are reading is good or bad, right or wrong? How do you decide? And that's a question that I think we all have to wrestle with. And, and it may seem like kind of an elementary question, and it, and it kind of is. But I think today it is particularly relevant, right? We are living in a time of unprecedented craziness, right? We're, we're living at a time when elections are being contested, when the Capitol building has been attacked by rioters. We are facing serious virus restrictions, continued police brutality and systemic injustice. And in the midst of it all, we are appealing to different sources to assign moral judgments, right? Some of us are watching what's unfolding around the world and we're saying, this is really good, but this is bad. And others of us are looking at those same things and going, no, this is good and this is bad. And, and we, all of the discussion around this is, of course, heightened by our access to information, our access to one another through anonymous platforms like Twitter and Facebook, etc. And so this is a, a crazy time, but it might not be a more, there might not be a more important time for us to ask ourselves, how do we know what we know? How do we know what is good? How do we know what is evil? And how do we go about figuring that out for ourselves? Like I said before, for a Christian, the answer is Jesus. And this is a claim that he makes in this passage about himself. Right? So if you remember, this whole story that we talked about last week was predicated on an experience Jesus had of healing a man on the Sabbath day. So this guy who, who was uh, paralyzed, could not get himself healed. Jesus walks by, heals him on the Sabbath day. That guy goes and tells the Pharisees, the religious leaders, that he was healed by Jesus, and the Pharisees are all upset. And they come to Jesus accusing him. In fact, John says they wanted to kill him for his offense. Jesus defended himself. We looked at that last week. And this is the second part of Jesus's defense. And so I want to jump in in verse 30 
with the second half, Jesus' defense, and, and looking at how Jesus is the one who judges, who makes those judgments of what is right and what is wrong, both eternally, but also for us today. Here's Jesus' claim, verse 30. He says, I can do nothing on my own. As I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just, because I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. So first, Jesus makes a claim in the previous passage that he is the judge, that God the Father has given Jesus the Son all authority to judge. And now Jesus claims in verse 30 that his judgment is perfectly just. And the two things that he bases this, this claim upon are this. One, he says, I can do nothing on my own. That's how he starts verse 30. And then says, I seek not my own will, but the will of him who sent me. In other words, Jesus says, my judgment is just. My judgment is perfect and fair because I live in perfect submission to the Father and I live in perfect unity with him. So Jesus understands that God the Father has bestowed upon him this ability to judge and the, and the position to judge, and he lives in that perfect submission of, I don't do anything on my own. We talked about this last week, that Jesus' claim to divine authority is not a claim to autonomy, but in fact a, a claim to perfect submission and unity. So Jesus goes, yeah, I, I have the ability to judge and my judgment is right and just in part because I am forever perfectly submitted to the God of the universe. But then also he goes, I, because I'm not here for my own good. He goes, I don't seek my own will. I'm not here to, to gather power and position and approval and all of this stuff from, from y'all or from anyone else. I, I'm not here for me. I don't judge for me. He goes, I, I judge to glorify the Father. I am in perfect unity with him. I am only here to carry out his will. It's not about him, which actually kind of makes him the perfect judge because he's not trying to satisfy some deep need in himself or to gather power for himself, right? So this is Jesus' claim, that he is the judge. And, and remember that his argument here is with religious folks, right? He's talking to the Pharisees primarily, these Jewish religious leaders who are against him, trying to kill him potentially. And so this is his argument to them, to these religious people. So I want to run through his argument really quickly as to why he not only is the judge, but why they should be looking to him for judgment remembering, of course, that this whole situation is because he healed a guy on the Sabbath. That's going to become pretty important here, okay? So verse 31, these are four of Jesus's proofs that he makes. And again, he's talking to religious folks, but then again, we're all religious folks when it comes down to it. One, verse 32. He says, there is another, well, let's start in verse 31. He says, if I alone bear witness about myself, my testimony is not deemed true. Basically just going like, if, if all I'm saying is I'm, I'm the judge and I judge right, and that's it, that's the only evidence, then of course you're not going to listen because that's not the only evidence. Verse 32, he says, there is another who bears witness about me, and I know that the testimony he bears about me is true. You sent to John, now this is John the Baptist. I know there's a lot of Johns, very popular name is the Jennifer of first century Palestine, right? But he goes, listen, you sent to John the Baptist and he has borne witness to the truth. 
Not that the testimony that I receive is from man, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Now, catch what Jesus says here. This is great. He says, he was a burning and shining lamp, and you were willing to rejoice for a while in his light. Okay? Here's, here's what Jesus is saying. You liked John. You listened to John. You sent people to John to figure out who John was and why he had all these crowds and everybody loved John and everyone was getting baptized by John and you loved him for a while until, until he started saying things you didn't like, right? You were, you were fine with him while he was just kind of doing his fire and brimstone repent and be baptized deal. You're like, okay, that's fine. That, that, that's, no, that's no big threat to our authority. But the moment he then went, and there's the Messiah, that, that Jesus right there, the one on, the, whose sandals I am not fit to untie, that is the Messiah. All of a sudden, he was a threat. All of a sudden, John was not someone to be listened to because if the Messiah is on the scene, then your little power that you've got as, as priests and as Pharisees is massively reduced in the face of the Messiah right? So you, you basked in the light and the glory of the prophet John the Baptist for a minute until he said something that you didn't like, right? And this is how it goes with prophets. This is how it goes with experts often in our world. We pick them based on how well they confirm our priors, we like them so long as they agree with us and affirm the way we see the world. And then we flip on them the moment they say something we don't like, right? So we, we, we love them, we love them, we love them as long as they're telling a story that confirms all of our biases. And then the moment they step out of line and they get off the platform, all of a sudden they're fake and they are not worth our time. And yet saying things we don't like is like the whole job of prophets. That is their job description. It's just to say things that people don't like to hear because their loyalty is to the truth, not to us. Okay, so we like the kinds of prophets that are just kind of waiting for us to tell them what we want them to say to us so that we can kind of live in this loop of consistency and, and, and agreement. And that's not the job of a prophet at all. Their job is the truth, no matter how it makes us feel. So Jesus goes, the first witness to me was John the Baptist, and you liked him until he started talking about me. But that's not it. Number two, he says, but the testimony that I have is greater than that of John. Verse 36, for the works that the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I am doing bear witness about me that the Father has sent me, right? So from the very beginning of John, John has called the miracles of Jesus signs, right? And a sign always points beyond itself, right? You ever pull up to a stop sign, you don't marvel at the stop sign. You're not like, wow, so red and octagonal, right? Like you don't, you don't marvel at the sign itself. You obey what the sign is pointing to or how it's instructing you or what it means right? So G John has always called Jesus' miracles signs. They weren't just amazing things that happened that were like, wow, that's pretty cool how he turned water into wine. I'm going to now follow him to every party with like a water bottle. Uh, but he goes, this is, a, this is a sign pointing beyond himself to a greater truth that he is the Messiah. Jesus goes, every single one of those signs, how is that not bearing witness to who I am? 
right? Like all of the miracles, I healed the official son, I turned the water into wine, I've done sign after sign after sign. I mean, the, this whole argument is because I healed a guy on the Sabbath. Don't, don't you remember that? Like, let's just pause for a moment and remember that we're having an argument and you want to kill me because I healed a guy on the wrong day, right? So let's remember that I walked by a disabled person who has been paralyzed his entire life. I healed that man so he could get up and run to narc me out to tell you what I did. And what you're focused on is not the fact that this man, this, this child of God, this image bearer can now walk again. What you're focused on was the day of the week I did it. Let's just remember that. Like, let, let's remember that you're up in arms because I healed a guy. And so instead of seeing that as a witness to my divinity, you're seeing that as a reason why I should be killed. So that's number two. Jesus says, number three, verse 37. And the father who sent me has himself borne witness about me. His voice you have never heard. His form you have never seen. And you do not have his word abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he has sent, right? So the scholars and commentators are all kind of like, we're not exactly sure what it is Jesus is referencing here. Some people have said, well, it's his baptism, right? When the Holy Spirit descends as in the form of a dove and the father's voice goes, this is my son in whom I am well pleased. And that may be, in fact, what Jesus has in mind. Problem with that is uh, John's gospel doesn't tell that story. Right? So that, that wouldn't have been part of John's gospel account. So it, it, it's a bit of a stretch to think that that's what Jesus is talking about. So most commentators are going, listen, this is just the, the general revelation from the Old Testament, from the prophetic, from the, all, all of the testimony of God about the Son, that Jesus is really making the point, listen, God the Father has testified about me, but you don't know his voice. You've never seen him. And in fact, you don't even know him. You don't even love him. And here's how I know, because you've rejected me. And if you actually knew the father, you would recognize me. If you actually knew God, if you actually followed him, you would see the family resemblance in me. You'd see how I act in consistent ways with how he's acted. You'd see how I speak in ways that are consistent with the way he spoke, but you don't, which tells me you don't actually know him. In fact, it dovetails then into the fourth witness, verse 39. And this is damning to the Pharisees. He says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me that you may have life. The Pharisees knew their Bibles, the Old Testament, right? Like they knew it really well. They, they, were, they were so careful with the scriptures and they would learn it and they would memorize it and they took great care to never misquote it. I mean, like they knew the Bible. In fact, many of them knew it so well that they were finding their own kind of identity and value and hope for eternal life in their knowledge of the scripture. And Jesus goes, you know the scriptures so well and yet somehow you missed the fact that they're all about me. Somehow you missed all of the prophecies. You missed Isaiah 53. Does that not seem familiar to you at all? You missed Micah. You missed, you missed all of these prophecies that are about me. You missed all of these moments where it gives a picture of me. You didn't see me ever. 
At the end of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus appears to two of his disciples while they're walking down the road. And it says that beginning with the law and the prophets, he showed how all of the Old Testament talks about him. Somehow these legal scholars, these Bible scholars missed this. And it says, Jesus says, you go to the Bible to justify yourself rather than finding me in it, your justifier. And that, that, that's critical. We're, we're going to come back to that in a moment. So Jesus goes, listen, he, I, I am the just judge. I am the one that gets to decide whether or not healing a man on the Sabbath is right or wrong. That's, that's for me to decide. And here's, here's why. Because the scriptures attest to me, because God himself attests to me, because John the Baptist attests to me, because I healed the dang guy on the Sabbath and we're missing the main point of this deal. Does not that mean anything? Because now he's going to challenge them. And these are challenges I want us to hear. Okay? This is a little bit of inside baseball. This is a little bit of an inside conversation. So again, if you're here and you're not a Christian, I want you to keep asking that question. How do I know what I know? How do I know what is right? How do I know what is wrong? But, but for you who are Christians, who have made that confession of faith, I, I want you to hear the challenges of Jesus that he's going to lay out to the Pharisees here in these next few verses, because I think it is absolutely necessary for us during this time, to demonstrate consistent dependence on the judgment of Jesus as we look around at the increasingly crazy world around us. Challenge number one, verse 41. Jesus says, I do not receive glory from people, okay? But I know that you do not have the love of God within you. I have come in my Father's name, and you do not receive me. If another comes in his own name, you will receive him, right? Jesus goes, listen, I can tell that you don't love God because you are not looking to my judgment. This is the challenge for us. When we see on television, when we see on Twitter, when we see on Facebook, when we see in the news, all of the things that are going on, whose judgment are you looking to? Who are you asking? Is this right? Is this wrong? What should we be doing? Should, should, we, should we submit to the authorities uh, on the, uh, about these coronavirus restrictions and, and obey what they're saying and wear our masks and stay home when possible? Or, or have we come to the moment where we need to rush the Capitol and fight for our rights to be the church? What's right? What's wrong? And, and I don't want the way that I even framed that choice to, to express what I think is right or wrong. I, I, what I want us to do is to look at the world around us and go, okay, what does Jesus say? What would he have us do? And so the challenge that Jesus has for us in this passage, he goes, if you love God, you would be coming to me to answer these questions. But when you come to me, are you finding answers that you don't like and then are therefore going outside to go, well, okay, but that was, that's for Jesus and that, that, that is, that, that's for my spiritual life. That doesn't apply to my political life. 
I remember early, early in, when, uh, in the primaries in 2016, I remember Christians saying to me, listen, I'm not trying to elect my pastor here. I'm not trying to uh, elect you know, some, some trusted person. It's just, it, it's who is going to win these battles? Who is going to fight for us? This is not about you know, the moral issues or all of this. I'm not trying to, this, Trump's not gonna be my pastor. He's gonna be the president. He's gonna win these battles. And I just ask, is that how we think about it? Is that how we're supposed to think about it? Because now four years later, I hear more of that. And on the other side, I hear, we'll, we just need to do whatever we can to get this guy out. Well, it doesn't matter. I, I, I get whatever issues these other candidates have. We just, all that matters is getting this guy out of power. And I go, okay. Is that right? Is that what we should be doing? And how'd you figure that out? How did you land that that was the priority? Were you going to Jesus? Were you going to Jesus to ask, what, what do I do? What is right and what is wrong? That's what Jesus says here. He goes, listen, I, I can tell you don't love God because you're not coming to me for answers. You see what I do. You see what I teach. You see that I, I, I healed a man on the Sabbath, and instead of coming to me to go, hey, talk me through this, why did you do that? Why did you feel like that was okay? You are seeking to kill me because I am doing something that's inconsistent with your prior convictions, and, and I'm not confirming your biases, right? I mean, do we come to Jesus and hear him say, for instance, turn the other cheek, and we go, well, that's not how, we, that's not how politics work. That's not how real life, that's not how business works. That's not how real life works, Jesus. So I, I get that. And like, yeah, for my kids, I want them to turn the other cheek. And, and yeah, if someone like wrongs me personally, yeah, I might do that. But that's not how it works in the real world. Is that, is that how we re respond? Is that when we read Jesus' words to us, the, the prophetic word of God, do we respond by going, well, you don't get it. I mean, that's not how it works in the real world. Jesus goes, if you love God, you will follow my judgment. Number two, verse 44. He says, how can you believe when you receive glory from one another and do not seek the glory that comes from the only God? He goes, you have no choice. There's no chance that you will believe because you spend so much of your time seeking the glory and approval of the people around you. All of your focus is horizontal to the people around you going like, okay, if I do this, what will they think? What will they think? What will they say? Instead of seeking the glory and approval that comes from God, if I do this, what will he think? What will he say? Because there's no way you will believe. There's no chance that you have to follow me as long as your eyes are here. I can't tell you how many times I have heard in the last several months, well, you know, you can't say that anymore. You can't say that or else these people will say this. You can't say that. You can't do that anymore. It's not allowed anymore. I go, says who? Who cares? Who cares what they say? Who cares what they will do? I, I, I care what God says. I care what God will do. And by all means, I struggle to not listen to people around me all the time too. I, I, I'm, I'm always, I always have my ear on, well, if I do this or say this, what? I mean, I, I'm thinking that right now. And I'm talking into a camera. 
and I'm wondering what the camera thinks of what I'm saying right now. I, I am constantly aware of like, man, if I make this too political or if I make this not political enough or if I make this too much about real life or not enough about the grace of God, will people leave? And I, I get that all the time. But I'm telling you, Jesus goes, the, here's the challenge. The question we ought to be asking ourselves is not what will they say? Who cares what they will say compared to what will he say? That's the question. That's the challenge that Jesus is bringing to us. Do the right thing. Seek my judgment and worry about what I'm going to say and what I'm going to think. Don't worry about what they're going to say or what they're going to think. And the, and the them is both sides. And, and both sides, meaning not just conservative and liberal, Democrat or Republican. I, I'm not about that. Like going, we think all the time and we're obsessed with what will people who agree with me think? Can, can I hold this position? Can I affirm this thing? What will it, is that on brand with my, my thing, my group, my tribe? And then there are many, and I, and I hear this from church people, I hear this from conservatives so often to go, well, you can't say that anymore because the, you know, those people out there, and they're talking about their, their enemies, essentially, their opponents going, well, you can't say that's not politically correct, and they'll cancel you, they'll do whatever, whatever. And I go, who cares? Who cares? What are we actually afraid of here? Have we given those people so much power over our hearts? Have we, are they taking up space in our brains that we care so much about what they think? We're so afraid to either offend or confirm what they think about us. Jesus goes, you got no chance to believe in me if all you're worried about is them. Challenge number three, verse 45. He says, do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. There is one who accuses you, but it's Moses on whom you have set your hope. If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words? Now, he's talking again to a very specific group of people, these Pharisees, who, who have built their life, who have built their culture, who have built their whole religious framework on the words of Moses. And Jesus goes, if you really believed Moses, you'd believe me because Moses wrote about me. Moses was all about me. Moses was into me before anyone else was into me. He was like early hipster, right? Like way into Jesus before anybody else was. Because, but you, you don't even listen to Moses. You say you do, you act like you do, but you won't even follow your own convictions. This is what Jesus' challenges to us. He goes, listen, I don't have to, I don't have to condemn you. I don't have to convict you. Your own confession convicts you. He goes, just be consistent. You're a big Moses guy? Great. Believe Moses all the way down. Because if you believe Moses all the way down, you get to me. You're a Christian? Great. Awesome. Be one. Act that, uh, be a Christian all the way down. Not only down here when it's easy or over here where it makes sense or here where it gives you the kind of power and position and, and popularity that you're looking for. Only here when, it can, when, it's, when there's overlap with your political convictions, but not here. Like he goes, just, just let your confession of faith work its way all the way through your life. Because at the end of the day, I, I won't have to convict you. I won't have to condemn you. Your own stated 
convictions will do the talking. Because you start by going, well, I'm a Christian. Okay, what's that mean? Does that mean Jesus is the final judge in your life? Cool, then let's have that conversation. Let's talk about what Jesus might think about this situation, what Jesus might teach us. Now, do I think that, that if we all just asked about Jesus's judgment, that we would all agree? No, of course not. I mean, church history has taught us that faithful men and women who seek the will of God and are learning the scriptures and looking for Jesus can land in very different places. That's fine. But man, that's a conversation worth having. The conversation we're having now is not. The conversation where we are all kind of cherry picking the sources and the authority and the judgment that just confirm all the things we want to be true and we don't let anyone or anything actually challenge us, challenge our behavior, challenge our words, challenge our thoughts. And certainly we are not having a discussion about like, well, what would Jesus do? How would Jesus, what did Jesus teach us? What, is, what, what did Jesus model for us? What would, how would he lead us in this thing? How would he have responded to this? Man, that's a conversation. I'll argue with you about that all day long, all day long. I love arguing more than I should. But man, if we're going to do this and go, well, this expert, but that expert, but this person, but this tweet, but that thing, but this party, but this, no. No, that's death. That's death. So we're going to look to Jesus. Jesus's judgment is just because he is one with the Father and he is only here to do the Father's will. So what do we find when we look to Jesus for judgment? Two things that we won't find in the world. First, when we look to Jesus, we will find out that we are wrong. That we're wrong. That our instincts will lead us to death and our desire for power or revenge or popularity or owning the libs or owning the conservatives or owning whatever all comes from Satan and sin. That's what we will find. We will find that Jesus the judge has already brought the verdict. There's no deliberation. The verdict is in and we are guilty. That is what we will find from Jesus. And, and so w w if that is true, this is why Jesus comes to the Pharisees and goes, you search the scriptures thinking that in them you find eternal life. You think that you can justify yourself by using the scriptures to make yourself seem like you're better than everybody else or you're good enough to be approved. You're good enough to earn eternal life. He goes, this is what you will find. If you really come to me, here's what you will find. The verdict is in, you are guilty. Stop trying to justify yourself. As long as your eyes are here and they are not here, you will be constantly and never-endingly trying to justify yourself because here's what you will find. No matter what group, what tribe, what party you are in, you step out of line once and you're out. Unless you come groveling back saying, I'll tow the party line. I will say what you want me to say. I will be what you want me to be. You're out. It is a constant work to self-justify, to stay in and not get kicked out. Jesus goes, no, no, no. You come to me, you're out. <laughs> the, 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 there is no more, there's no deliberation. You're guilty, so stop trying to justify yourself. Now, that's the first thing you will find. And that doesn't sound like good news. That's why there's a second thing. There's always a second thing. Second thing you will find with Jesus. You will find that despite all that, 
that you are deeply loved and accepted in Christ. That you are guilty and loved. That you are guilty and accepted. That if you will only stop trying to justify yourself, if you will stop looking here and just begin to look here and go, okay, Jesus, what do you say about me? What do you say I ought to do? I want to follow your judgment. I believe your judgment is just, and I'm not going to fight. I'm not going to wrestle for the approval of these people anymore. I'm just going to ask, what do you want? Here's what Jesus is going to say. He's going to go, listen, you can't justify yourself. You never will justify yourself. Good news. I did it for you. Just be with me. Just hang with me. Keep asking me. Keep seeking me. The path of Christ is the path of humble repentance and faithful dependence. Let me say that again. The path of Christ is the path of humble repentance. To go, I, I can't, I didn't, I won't. That's, that's the path. Humble repentance and faithful dependence. This is what Jesus models for us. Where he goes, I can do nothing on my own. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. Second person of the Trinity eternally divine and omnipotent. And he goes, I can do nothing on my own. Divinity is not about autonomy. Divinity is about unity with God. The power uh, uh, that, that we ought to seek is not the power of autonomy and independence, but it is the power that we receive when we are faithfully dependent upon him. That's the path of Christ. It is not a path of power. It is not a path of honor. It is not a path of position. What have we said here in the last couple of weeks? We talked about our mission as a church. Our mission as a church is to make disciples who follow Jesus faithfully. And that word faithfully is really important to me. That we follow Jesus faithfully in real life. Here's why. Because there are going to be times where it's easy to follow Jesus. And there are going to be times when it's hard to follow Jesus. And there are going to be more times when it's hard than when it's easy. And it seems, it feels like it's getting increasingly difficult. I read a statistic today, actually, that since 2007, no country has had a diminished amount of religious adherence more than the United States. Because it's becoming more and more difficult. So fewer and fewer people are doing it. Our mission is to make disciples who follow Jesus faithfully, meaning no matter what's going on no matter what the challenges are, no matter what's out there, we would recognize, not, not based on like our great uh, commitment and our great discipline and we're just the more faithful ones and they're not, but we would, by humble repentance and faithful dependence, recognize what's out here is harder and harder and harder and harder, and so we need him more and more and more and more. The act of following Jesus faithfully is not the act of perfect obedience but perfect dependence. That is the gospel. That is what Jesus is, is drawing us to and inviting us to. Not perfect obedience, but perfect dependence. That's the hope we have. That it's the, not, not the more able that we are, but the more needy that we are. And I'll, I'll be honest, I hate neediness. I hate being needy. You know what I hate more than being needy? Needy people. People being needy for me, hate it. It's bad, bad. I got five kids. It's brutal, right? Uh, uh, but this is the deal. Jesus wants us to be needy because he knows that if we're needy for him, we have access to the creator of the universe, the most powerful, gracious, loving being in the universe. So the call of Jesus is not a call to perfect obedience, but a call to perfect dependence. 
This is real life. Let's follow him faithfully. And when we fail, and we will, let's remember that he alone is faithful to us. They will not be, but he is. We fail them, and we're out. We fail him, and he goes, see, this is why you need me. Of course you failed me. That's why I died on the cross. Because you need me. Because you're going to fail. So let's fail into the arms of Jesus by acting out that humble repentance and faithful dependence on him. Let's pray. Jesus, we need you. We are, in our best moments, wholly dependent upon you. Whether we know it or not, whether we recognize it or not, whether we can say it out loud or not, we are dependent upon you. You give us every single breath, every fire of our synapse is because you have given it to us and you could take it away in a moment. Lord, we are completely and wholly dependent upon you. May we be always conscious of that. May we choose to be dependent. May we choose to lay every thought before you, every decision before you, as our just judge, to be able to go, okay, God, what do you think? Jesus, what would you do? Spirit, what, how, how should I be thinking about this? Give me discernment and wisdom and understanding to know what to do. And then let's talk in community, wrestle together about what would Jesus want us to do. To do whatever we can to shut out the influences of the outside world and just ask, like, I, I, I don't want the approval, I don't want the glory of man, I want the approval of God. And I receive the approval of God insofar as I am dependent upon so Lord, make us aware of our need for you so that we can be ever more dependent upon you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Now, as we always do, we're gonna transition to a time of response. Do this in a couple of different ways. The band's gonna come back and lead us uh, to sing together, worship of our God. Um, we give during this time and encourage you to continue to give generously for the mission of the church here in our city and around the world. We're going to have a time of silence in a moment, but, but before that, I want to talk about communion because this is the moment that we act out our dependence every single week. We do it every week because we need a constant reminder of our dependence on Jesus. There's something wrongly wired into our brain, something broken in us that craves independence. This is one of the most powerful things about this passage to me is that Jesus, Jesus modeled dependence. Jesus modeled unity with the Father, saying, I can do nothing on my own. The Son does nothing away from the Father. We are perfectly united. I am dependent upon him and that that is the model for us. So communion reminds us of that. By, by, by taking the bread and the wine together, we remember how dependent we are on the blood of Christ, on the sacrifice of Jesus to save us, to make us whole again. So we're going to take communion here in just a moment. Before that, we're going to have a time of silence. And I just encourage you, man, think about what we've talked about today. How are you making these decisions? How, what is the lens through which you are seeing this world? What is right and what is wrong? And how can you fall ever more faithfully dependent upon Jesus for those answers? Let's pray.